The old pilots playing tales, eating the sun. The Bata Maliba people of Tongo and Benin in Africa have a myth that the sun and moon fight. But when the two merge, it is a time to stop fighting and resolve old feuds and anger. In many countries, myths have evolved to explain the magical disappearance of the sun during an eclipse. It may have been eaten by a dragon, a dog, or even a toad. Whatever the ancient explanations, I wonder what would have come from the minds of our ancestors had the event been coincident with a resounding, deep, booming, thunderous noise that shook their houses and clapped the ears, not once, but twice. America has just experienced a total eclipse of the sun, and it was celebrated with quiet awe and cheering exuberance in equal amounts. But over the deserts of North Africa on the 30th of June 1973, a completely different and never-to-be-repeated sound effect accompanied the moon's shadow as it raced across the continent. By any measure, the supersonic airliner Concorde was a marvel of engineering and aerodynamic design, a collaborative project between British and French aircraft manufacturers. It was first conceived in 1955 when the Royal Aircraft Establishment formally looked at the possibility. Initially, it seemed to be an unsolvable dilemma, since the aircraft appeared to need an enormous amount of fuel, vast runway lengths, and eye-wateringly fast approach speeds. However, a team of three RAE engineers, Johanna Weber, Dietrich Kutcherman, and Eric Maskell, who understood three-dimensional flow separation, came up with the slender delta wing design that would change the entire nature of supersonic design almost overnight. The creation of a low-pressure vortex over a long slender delta wing would provide the lift required to lower takeoff and landing speeds. Indeed, the Handley Page test aircraft, the HP-115, would ultimately demonstrate safe control speeds as low as 60 knots. It was the wing plan form, an ogival delta, which follows the shape of a Roman OG arch that cured many of the problems encountered during the design development, such as the enormous centre of pressure movement on the wing throughout the aircraft's speed range. Look at the aircraft's plan form to see the beauty of the wing's shape as it transitions from the straight fuselage side into a concave curve, which then smoothly reverses into a convex curve, eventually to end up again parallel to the fuselage. The centre of pressure, the point through which the sum of the lift can be thought to act, still moved around two metres in relation to the centre of gravity as the aircraft transitioned to supersonic flight, so fuel was pumped aft at the same time to keep Concorde in trim. Four of the mighty Rolls-Royce Olympus engines from the Vulcan were chosen to power the Concorde, albeit they were reheated for takeoff and to overcome the transonic drag rise as the aircraft accelerated to supersonic flight. A complex system of intake ramps and spill doors controlled the air entering the intakes and splitter doors kept the intakes separate. 
Once above Mach 1.7, the aircraft could cruise relatively economically, but at lower levels, the nature of the turbojets made them quite inefficient, particularly while taxiing to the runway, when up to 2% of the aircraft's fuel could be consumed. As a result, a high level of cooperation was needed at the airports that operated the Concorde so that no taxiing delays occurred. It would be hard to list all of the firsts that the Concorde introduced to the world of civil aviation, but here are a few. It had a full fly-by-wire control system, albeit analogue, as was the engine control, a predecessor of the modern FADEC digital engine control systems commonplace today. Its ability to supercruise in dry power above Mach 1.7 was essential, as in reheat the fuel consumption was pretty high. Previously, only advanced military aircraft had been capable of supersonic cruise without the use of afterburners. The Concorde's autopilot allowed hands-off control throughout the flight envelope, and the autothrust was particularly valuable, since the approach was made well on the wrong side of the drag curve, and accurate throttle handling was very important. At low speed and high angle of attack in the landing phase, if the aircraft slowed, its drag would increase rapidly, causing the speed to reduce even further. This made speed control unstable, and if this tendency wasn't caught early, it was easy for the speed to drop to dangerous levels. The Mach 2.02 speed limit was mainly due to the heating effect of air compression on the outer surfaces. The majority of the aircraft was made of an advanced aluminium alloy called Hydominium, RR58, which could operate up to temperatures as high as 127 degrees centigrade. The increase in temperature caused the airframe to expand by up to 30 centimetres, it's nearly a foot. To keep the cabin cool, fuel was used as a heat sink for the air conditioning as well as the hydraulic system. The aircraft's paint scheme was also limited as it needed a highly reflective white finish which reduced the skim temperature by as much as 11 degrees centigrade. Due to its high cruising levels, the flight deck was also fitted with a radiometer to measure the levels of ionizing radiation. During periods of high solar activity, the cruise level was sometimes limited to as low as 47,000 feet. Construction was started in 1965, and the two prototypes, 001 and 002, flew in 1969. Before long, the aircraft was flying around the world on sales tours, and it commenced its first scheduled service early in 1976. But the flight I'm interested in occurred nearly three years earlier. In 1973, there was going to be a very special solar eclipse. Due to a combination of geometric effects on the 30th of June, the total eclipse that was going to occur would last 7 minutes and 4 seconds. Such long eclipses are rare, the previous similar one having been in 1098, and there wasn't going to be another one along until 2150. An eclipse gives a rare chance to observe the sun's corona, the tendrils of gas that dance around the sun's outer atmosphere. But the time is usually too short to establish patterns of movement or make truly detailed analysis. 
Independently of each other, astronomers in both France and the UK saw the arrival of this new marvel of the sky and the upcoming eclipse as a wonderful coincidence. Following an eclipse with an aircraft wasn't a new idea by any means, but in Concorde, flying at Mach 2, the window of opportunity for them to observe the eclipse would be extended from 7 minutes to a luxurious 70 minutes, and high in the atmosphere there would be no chance of pesky clouds getting in the way. Approaches were made to use the British prototype 002 as well as the French 001. The British turned down the request, but Pierre Lina took the proposal direct to André Turcat, the first test pilot to fly a Concorde. Turcat was curious, and over lunch in Toulouse, Pierre sketched out his idea on a napkin. The plan was deceptively simple. Closing in at maximum velocity, Concorde would swoop down from the north and intercept the shadow of the moon over northwest Africa. Travelling together at almost the same speed, they would essentially race the solar eclipse across the surface of the planet, giving astronomers an unprecedented opportunity to study the various phenomena only visible during an eclipse. The ethereal solar corona, the effect of sunlight on the darkened atmosphere, and the brief red flash of the chromosphere, a narrow region around the sun that is usually washed out by the much brighter photosphere. Turcat was impressed, and he took the idea to his bosses at Aerospatiale, who, perhaps surprisingly, gave the go-ahead, agreeing to absorb the costs. Hardly expecting such cooperation, the astronomers had surprisingly little time to work out the details of what experiments to take. Meanwhile, Concorde 001 had to be modified with four observation windows in the roof and support frames to carry the various sensors and cameras. Five teams were offered the chance to participate. The French Institute of Astrophysics, Kitt Peak National Observatory, Los Alamos National Laboratory, Queen Mary University of London and the University of Aberdeen. With four months to go, the final permissions were obtained and the researchers rushed into their final preparations. In the meantime, the crew of 001 were busy planning. Turcat decided that the Grand Canaries Las Palmas airport would be a good launch point, and they would intercept the moon's shadow over Mauritania and follow it as far as their landing point at Fort Leamy in Chad. John Beckham recalled his excitement at being given the chance to join the teams. I was absolutely ecstatic and a bit worried, he recalled. For one thing, the time was short. I had the basic equipment, of course, which was a Michelson interferometer with a helium-cooled detector, but I didn't have the infrastructure to link to Concorde and track the eclipse path. There was no time to automate it. Instead, Beckman devised a way to track the eclipse manually. At last the preparations were complete and the scientists assembled on board. At exactly 10.08 in the morning, Turcat spooled up the four Olympus turbojets and engaging the afterburners, roared down the runway at Las Palmas. Thousands of miles to the east, the moon's shadow was leaving South America and racing across the Atlantic towards Africa. 
A few minutes after takeoff, the aircraft passed Mach 1 and climbing into the stratosphere, they leveled at 56,000 feet and easily accelerated to Mach 2. Despite their practice runs, the atmosphere on board was tense as the teams prepared their equipment and the flight crew worked to perfect their timing to intercept the course. Using the twin inertial platforms, they followed a carefully planned trajectory to merge with the shadow. Their calculations worked perfectly and they arrived under the eclipse within a second of the expected time. The chase was on. Alone in the Mauritanian sky, they hurtled along the path of totality. Under the four specially constructed apertures, the astronomers concentrated on their observations. One team devoted their efforts on detecting dust particles left over from comets in the solar halo, attempting to determine if there was a ring or sphere of them around the sun. Another used a side porthole to watch the effects produced by the sudden darkness on oxygen atoms in the Earth's atmosphere, whilst a veteran American airborne eclipse chaser, Donald Leibenberg, looked up at the eclipse to measure pulsations in light intensity. Beckman was very busy, but he did recall having time to glance out of the side window at one point and see the edge of the umbra, the penumbra, and the daylight beyond. He was also able to gaze up at the corona, and as the limb of the moon slowly occulted the solar disk, he saw the chromosphere, which flashed out in bright red alpha light. Concord could have kept going, but the landing site at Chad was approaching fast. Turcat turned south out of the darkness and descended towards the runway. The landing was a little tense as the runway was barely long enough and Turk had only had a few metres of tarmac left when he stopped the aircraft. They all stepped off and into a surreal scene of half-light as the sun was still partially eclipsed. Armoured cars moved amongst the people as a rumoured coup d'etat had been timed to occur during the eclipse. People in the street gazed at the sun through pieces of smoked glass and children threw stones into the air to chase away the creature that had tried to devour it. In one flight, the remarkable capabilities of Concorde had been demonstrated and the mission was a testament to the way that scientific inquiry leads to innovation. Nowadays, satellites can create artificial eclipses and permanently study our nearest star. At the time, however, knowledge of the solar corona was very, very limited. Planned Concorde eclipse flights in 2001 were cancelled, following the tragic crash of Flight 4590 just after takeoff from Paris on the 25th of July 2000. Shortly after, the fleet was grounded, never to fly again. Now, the elegant sweeping lines of Concorde's beautiful wing can only be seen in aircraft museums. And should you visit the Air and Space Museum at Le Bourget, you can see the exact aircraft that chased the eclipse in 1973, complete with the special roof portholes and the mission logo on the fuselage.